0: To hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander.
1: Now last week we spent all our time really looking at the first two verses of Hebrews 12, which are of course very familiar verses to us and very important too. And there is a sense in which verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12 are the introduction to this passage with their exhortation to perseverance in running the Christian race. And that was really what we spent our time on last Wednesday evening. The urging of God's people to perseverance, to going on, neither to drop out through weariness and faint-heartedness, nor to lag behind, but to persevere to the end. Now, of course, this race of which the Apostle is speaking in the Greek games in the ancient world, which is the figure of speech that he is depending on, is not the hundred-yard sprint. It's rather the marathon that he is describing. And the marathon was, of course, part of the Olympic Games, gaining its name, as those of you who have even a smattering of classical history Uh, perhaps no greater than my own smattering will remember, don't you? The Battle of Marathon. Do you remember the Battle of Marathon when uh, the soldier named Pheidippides ran from Marathon to Athens in uh, the year 490 BC and got there 26 miles he travelled and from that occasion there was a race called the Marathon. A long race which had many hard parts to it, many uphill areas in the race, many difficulties to be encountered, occasions when it would have been so easy to have given up. Not the short sprint where you can see the tape in front of you, but this long, long race in which perseverance is of the essence Now this is the kind of race that the Apostle is speaking of. And in the course of that race, there is uphill traveling, what Bunyan called in his Pilgrim's Progress the hill difficulty. And there were many hills difficulty in the midst of this race which the Apostle to the Hebrews is describing for us. And here in verses 3 to 17, it is with such periods in the Christian life that the writer is dealing. Days when we are going to go through chastenings and afflictions and disciplines and troubles of various sorts. And it is this part of the Christian race, the trials and fires and afflictions, That God's people go through. This is why perseverance is so necessary, of course. That there are periods in the Christian race like this. So much so that someone has given this passage we've just read this evening. The title, Counsel to Encourage God's People in Times of Chastening. From the length of the title, you would guess that's one of the old writers. Counsel to encourage God's people in times of chastening. Now it's a tremendously important thing for us to come to terms with the fact that we do have such periods in our Christian life. It is an essential part, indeed, of our Christian progress to Zion that we have such periods as these, times of affliction, times of darkness, Times of trial and trouble when we are, as it were, going through the fire. And to recognize that is a thing of cardinal importance. If we are really going to come to terms with what the Christian life is all about. I have often recommended to you that you should buy and read James Packer's book, Knowing God. And I hope that many of you have done so. I want to read to you what he has to say in a chapter which deals with this theme rather obliquely uh, from our purpose this evening. But let me read to you some of the things that he has to say. It is possible, he says, so to play down the rougher side of the Christian life. The daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walk in darkness as to give the impression that normal Christian living is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs in which everything in the garden is lovely all the time and problems no longer exist. Or if they come, they have only to be taken to the throne of grace and they will melt away at once. This is to suggest that the world, the flesh and the devil will give a man no serious trouble once he is a Christian. Nor will his circumstances and personal relationships ever be a problem to him. Nor will he ever be a problem to himself. Dr. Packer adds, Such suggestions are mischievous, however, because they are false. The truth is, But the God of whom it was said he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms. is very gentle with very young Christians just as mothers are with very young babies. Often the start of their Christian career is marked by great emotional joy, striking providences, remarkable answers to prayer, and immediate fruitfulness in their first acts of witness. Thus God encourages them and establishes them in the life. But as they grow stronger and are able to bear more, he exercises them in a tougher school. He exposes them to as much testing by the pressure of opposed and discouraging influences as they are able to bear, not more, but equally not less. Thus he builds our character, strengthens our faith, and prepares us to help others. Thus he crystallizes our sense of values. Thus he glorifies himself in our lives, making his strength perfect in weakness. So there is nothing unnatural in an increase of temptations, conflicts, and pressures as the Christian goes on with God. Indeed, something would be wrong if it didn't happen. But the Christian who has been told that the normal Christian life is unshadowed and trouble-free can only conclude as experiences of inadequacy and imperfection pile in upon him that he must have lapsed from normal. Something's gone wrong, he will say. It isn't working anymore. Now, I make that extensive quotation from Dr. Packer because I think that is profoundly true. And my pastoral experience is that it is precisely here that many of us Christian people need clarity and biblical thinking in our reactions to so many of the trials and tribulations of life. Now, in days of this kind, When we are in God's hands and being disciplined or tried, there are three possible dangers of which the Apostle speaks in this passage. Three false reactions, if you like. The first is in verse 3 of chapter 12. It is possible that we grow weary and faint-hearted because of them. Literally, the word is fainting in your souls. Someone has suggested going to pieces spiritually. Now you see how the apostle speaks of that. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary. Or faint-hearted. Now this is a real danger. You see, it's one of the reactions in a situation like this. You are in the midst of trial, you discover the fires of testing hitting your life, and the great temptation is that my reaction will be, what's the use? I'll give it all up. And especially if you have lived under the delusion that the normal Christian life is to be excused from all that sort of thing. The troubles that bother other people will not bother me. So when they flood in upon me, I grow weary and faint-hearted and say, what's the point of going on? And so very readily this kind of thing can happen in the lives of God's people. The tendency to give up, the tendency to go to pieces fainting in our souls, what uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the fainting fits of the Christian. The second reaction, which it's possible for us to have, and a false one, is in verse 5. And that is this. It uh, is quoted from the uh, Old Testament, from Proverbs chapter 3. In verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage or heart when you are punished or disciplined by him. It is possible, the authorized version translates it, to despise the Lord's chastenings, you see. Here you are in the midst of this situation, for example, and you treat it lightly, you despise it, you shrug it off. In other words, you don't take this situation seriously enough. You don't ask enough questions about it. You don't say, now, what is it that God is doing in this situation? What is he trying to say to me? What is he teaching me? You don't say, now... Here is God dealing with me in a special way, and I longingly desire that God may use these circumstances for his greater glory in my life. And so you don't take it serious enough. You turn it aside. Now, you see, it's possible to do that with a rather specialized form of hardness of heart. That is to turn a hard exterior to God's dealings with us in this kind of disciplinary way. So that we are not moved by them because we have kept a hard core. It's a very solemn and serious thing to see that happening and one has seen it happening. You know there are some times when in the midst of bereavement people will say it's astonishing that someone hasn't reacted in a different way. It seems as if that they have maintained almost a zombie-like hardness to the whole situation. Have you ever seen that? And sometimes one wonders if this is not the kind of thing the apostle is speaking of here. Do not regard lightly the disciplines of the Lord. But here is the third possible wrong way to react to this kind of situation when we are in the hands of God and being tried and disciplined. And it's in verse 15. See to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God so that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it the many become defiled. Now that's the other possible reaction to this kind of situation. It is the bitterness, bitterness in spirit and attitude and word and thought, which can so easily be produced from circumstances of this kind of which the apostle is speaking. Now you and I know this sort of thing. This kind of experience does not automatically produce sweetness in people's character. It does not beautify people's lives automatically, this kind of trial going through the fire. There are some people indeed, and some of God's people sadly, who have had a streak of bitterness brought into their spirit just because they have gone through this kind of trial. And agony. And some people can be made self-centered. Bitter. Difficult people. Because of it. So it's immensely important for us to pay careful heed to this teaching or counsel. Which the apostle gives the Lord's people for days of chastening. Because it is easy for us to slip into the wrong kind of attitude. Either to grow faint and weary and be tempted to give up or to become hardened and to despise and take lightly the Lord's dealings with us or to develop a root of bitterness and it's a very significant phrase a root that grows deep down in our hearts and begins to produce its kind of fruit. In our lives, and there is nothing sadder than to see someone whose life is soured by this sort of bitterness. Well now, the first thing that we need to learn about every such experience from this passage is that undergirding the whole of what the Apostle has to say, at which we'll look in a little more detail in a moment, but undergirding the whole of it, is the fact that God is not outside of this trial or testing or discipline, this affliction that the Apostle is speaking of, these days of hardship and adversity. God is not outside of it, nor is he absent from the scene. He is, in fact, in the very midst of it, employing it in our lives for his glory if we are ready to be exercised by it. So that far from being distant from us, far from being surprised by what is happening to us, and a spectator to it, God is in the very midst of every such experience of trial. And if we are ready to be in his hands, to be exercised by these disciplines, he is going to employ them as his instruments for his glory and for our blessing. That's basically what the apostle is saying. And both the nature and the duration of the trials are in his hands and in his control. And the picture that the apostle gives to us is the picture of a child in the hands of a perfect father. And that father in all the perfections of his love and wisdom is dealing with his child. And his child cannot come to harm there unless the child refuses to be exercised in the way that the Father means. Now what are these disciplines or trials we have to endure in the course of our Christian race or pilgrimage? They may simply be adverse circumstances when everything seems to go wrong. You know how that can happen to us in certain periods of our lives when there is... A combination of situations and things one after another seem to go wrong. And we say, when is this going to stop? You know? Now we many of us have that sort of experience in varying depths and varying degrees. When it seems as if situations one after another of adversity in our circumstances come pouring in upon us. And that can often be a period like this that the apostle is speaking of. They may be disappointments that we receive, plans that we had made and hopes that we had entertained, and they suddenly come crashing down round about us. They may be physical illness or sickness of some kind or suffering. That can very often be, and in Scripture often is described in precisely these terms. They may be inward trials or battles. It may be a period when we are knowing what it is to be cast down in our spirit. There may be all kinds of temptations when the assaults of the evil one take on a new naked horror for us. And that can be such a period as this that the apostle is speaking of. It may be a time of great and acute loss, a time of bereavement, for example. All kinds of situations fit into this category that the apostle is here speaking of. And these and many others are the forms in which God's disciplines are experienced. And the scripture is full of teaching on the right way to approach them and to think about them and to deal with them in our Christian experience. This, for example, is the great message of the book of Job. The great purpose of the book of Job is to teach God's people going through days of adversity how they are to deal with it, how they are to think about it, how they are to face it, what sort of reactions they should have towards situations like that. It's the kind of thing Paul is dealing with in several places, for example, in 2 Corinthians in the 1st chapter, and notably in the 12th chapter, where he speaks about his own physical suffering, whatever it may have been, this thorn in the flesh, which was given to him by God, although it was also a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And so there is the interplay both of the devil and of his work in in Paul's life, And there is God having given him this thing and declining to take it from him when Paul asked him three times. Now Paul has to begin to work out what is the place of this thing in the economy of God in my life then? And this is the sort of thing that the apostle is speaking of here. James deals with it in chapter 1 of his letter. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into diverse testings. The first passage that Ian Hamilton uh, took with the people in New Mills when he arrived and some of them were telling me it could easily have been misunderstood as he began his ministry and urged them to count it all joy when they fell into diverse testings one, and, one Peter particularly probably also two Peter has this uh, as its great theme think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is sent to try you Now the overall theme of this is that this is part of God's way of exercising his children into ways of adult godliness. Well now what does Hebrews 12 in this part teach us about the right way to approach such experiences? Let me try to put the teaching of these verses, or part of it anyway, in the form of four exhortations which arise out of these verses. And the first of them I think one could put this way. The apostle is exhorting us in the first place to measure it relatively. To measure this experience, this kind of trial, relatively. In verse 4, in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, he is urging them to measure their trials relatively. Relative, that is in the first place, to the sufferings of Jesus, I would think, in verse 3, wouldn't you? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For in your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now some of the commentators think that the apostle is describing here not only the agony of our Lord Jesus when he shed his blood on the cross in his battle for our redemption as it were, but these great drops of blood which in his anguish in Gethsemane he sweated as he faced the agony of bearing the wrath of God in the course of accomplishing redemption for God's people. This is probably what the apostle is speaking of, I think. He is bringing them to view their sufferings in the light of the sufferings of Jesus, you see. And it puts them, of course, in their proper context and begins to help us to see our, our sufferings in a proper light when we have them in against the background of the suffering of Jesus and what he bore in his perseverance. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But I think there is a wider principle involved than... Only the comparison with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. And Hebrews 11 gives us the key to it, I think. Some of the saints of God have had their sufferings described from chapter 11, verse 35 onwards. When the apostle says, some of these, some of these men of faith who endured in the race to the end, some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and scourging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy. There is the description, you see, of these people. Now this is a wider principle which is stretched out. Not only over all the saints of God in Scripture... And all the saints of God between the testaments, as the apostle is probably describing them at the end of chapter 11. But something even wider than that, you see, some of the saints of God who have suffered in such agonizing ways in history. Have you ever read the history of the Scottish Covenanters, for example? Have you ever read how some of these men stained the heather of Scotland red with their blood? How men like John Brown, not very far away from where we used to live in Ayrshire, stood confessing Christ gladly before Claverhouse's men and was fell to the ground before his wife and children and shed his blood for Christ and his covenant there. Some of the anguish that these men and women went through is such, you know... That not minimizing our trials and difficulties, beloved, but seeing them in their light, it brings us to see that many of them are just inconveniences. And it is a very important thing for us to take the lesson that the Apostle is teaching us here. You have not yet resisted to blood, he says, in your striving against sin. Measure it relatively and it's a very important thing for us to do now that does not mean that God makes light of our sufferings and anguish and trial but it does mean that we need to see it in the light of our Savior's suffering and in the light of the suffering of God's people down through the edges I seldom went up to Priest Hill and near to the place where John Brown was martyred, without thinking, God help me that I complain so much about so many trivialities when a man like that shed his blood for Christ and his covenant here. And how would I have got on if Claver house had come to me. Do you ever think of that? I think that's what he wants us to think of, as he says to us, measure it relatively. Then in verse 5, think about it biblically. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons, Now here he is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. And if you like to look back to Proverbs chapter 3, you will notice that it's a chapter all about the need to trust the Lord, to be not wise in your own eyes, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not to rely on your own insight, to acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make straight your paths, to honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your produce. And so on. Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. And then my son. Proverbs 3.11. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father. The son in whom he delights. That's the exhortation from Scripture which he says you must not forget. And Bishop Westcott points out that here the Apostle is telling us that what Scripture says is recognized as God speaking directly to them in this situation. Here is the use of Scripture, you see. It is God addressing us in this situation. So he says, think about this situation biblically. And the word addresses, or um, in the authorized version it says, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you, I think. The word is really the word from which we get our English word, dialogue. And that's very interesting because what it means is that scripture in the midst of this situation is conducting a dialogue with us. And as we think about such things as trials, before we enter into them really, Scripture is conducting a dialogue with us about the significance of these things, and the way that we are to view them, and the way we are to approach them, is to think about them biblically. Now the idea of this dialogue, you see, means that the use of Scripture for such times as these, trial, adversity, trouble, tribulation, tears, whatever it may be. The use of scripture is not simply to act as a sedative, to dull the ache. And that's often the mistaken way that people will use the scripture. Dr. Lloyd-Jones has got a rather telling and uh, Perhaps a slightly cutting phrase when he says that people so very often dip into the Word of God at such hours of special crisis and needn't and use it as a lollipop. Now you can see what he's meaning. I'm sure sometimes the sheer sweetness of God's Word may be something of a lollipop to us in moments when we are hard pressed. But you see what he means and the importance of it is very great. That Scripture is not to be used as a drug so that we are anesthetized from the experience that we are going through. Scripture is to be used in order to help us to face the situation in a biblical way. Now that's tremendously important, my brothers and sisters, because the Scripture reasons with us about this whole situation that we are passing through. And as the apostle quotes from the book of Proverbs, this is what he's doing. Have you forgotten this, he says? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are disciplined, punished by him. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, what is it that scripture reasons with us about then? Well, the first is, that the background the scripture is urging upon us, the background of every such experience is the love of God and the fatherhood of God. These are the great stabilizers to help us to stand in the midst of all the storms of life, that whatever is touching our lives as God's children, The background against which they are to be seen is the love of God and the fatherhood of God. So that we are able to say, my father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Think of the whole concept of fatherhood. Recognizing that there are reflections in humanity human fatherhood of the perfection of divine fatherhood for God is perfect love and perfect wisdom and has unlimited resources as our heavenly father now none of God's dealings with us this is what the apostle is urging upon us none of God's dealings with us even at the darkest hour are outside of the bounds of his perfect fatherhood, and therefore of his perfect love. And the fact that we are experiencing these trials is therefore not a denial of our sonship, or of God's fatherhood, but rather an evidence of it. Do you see in verse 6, For the Lord disciplines whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. My son is how God addresses us. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves. And the evidence of this discipline is that God loves you. The evidence of this chastisement that you are under is not that God has ceased to be your father or you have ceased to be his child, but that God is proving his fatherhood to you. If you think of the best of human fatherhood, you will know that there often comes a time in a father's relationship with his children when they must be chastised. It is almost universally so. There comes a time in a child's experience when they have to be hurt in order to be helped. Now that's a very real thing. And of course the simple fact is that for every normal father. The chastising of a child is an agony from which he would run a hundred miles. I can testify to that from my own experience. There haven't, thank God, been very many of these occasions in my experience as a father. But I can tell you that few things have cut me to the very marrow, as have the pains and anguish of having to chastise my children and hurt them. But why do we do it? It is because we have something infinitely bigger in mind than their immediate happiness. We have something infinitely greater that we are burdened with in our children than that they should keep a smiling face. And because God has infinitely greater things in his heart and mind and perfect purpose for us as his children, whom he loves in a way that we could never begin to fathom, He leads us into days of discipline when we come under the mighty hand of God in some of the ways of which the Apostle is here speaking. Now this is how we are to think biblically concerning our trials. It is for discipline that you have to endure, verse 7. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then it is not a sign that you are a specially loved son. It is a sign that your father doesn't care enough to be ready to go through the infinite cost of disciplining you. That's what he's saying. It's a sign of a lack of care, not a sign of the abs- of the presence of it. So he says, if we have submitted to this from our earthly father, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, verse 10, for a short time at their pleasure. Now, That sometimes is translated for their pleasure, and it it may well have something of that in it, because God knows there are many of us being evil, and Jesus uses this parallel often, you know. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, the perfect Father, give good things to those who ask him? But we, being evil, often vent our spleen on our children. That's a fact of modern society, of course. And we get out something on our children. And that's something we ought to plead with God that we will be delivered from doing. That our anger is not vented in our disciplining of our children. Disciplining is the result of love. Not of the kind of nature that may have been upset at business that day and is therefore short in temper and quick with the hand you know but the apostle recognizes that happens in earthly families he says our fathers have disciplined us for their pleasure or at their pleasure but he disciplines us for our good now that leads us to the third exhortation If in the first place we are to measure it relatively. And in the second place we are to think about it biblically. In the third we are to receive it meekly. Verse 9. If we have had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? You see, you can rebel against the disciplines of God. You can resist them. Or you can say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There are two ways in which, you see, we can ask the question, Why, when things happen. And I think it's always very significant when you hear people asking the question, Why? you can ask the question, why is this happening to me of all people? To me. That that comes over in many of our reactions. You know. Why is this kind of thing happening to me? And the implication is we could understand it for all sorts of other people. But deep down, what we are really saying is, to me of all people, how did I come to deserve this? And that's resentment, you see, a measure of rebellion and resentment against God, and also a measure of uh, pride in ourselves. Incidentally, are you not glad as I am that God doesn't give us what we deserve, I am profoundly grateful to God that he doesn't give me what I deserve. God knows I would flee from the possibility, wouldn't you? We could also ask the question, why Why is God of all people doing this to me? Why does God do this? We don't think God would have done this to us. We can understand it coming from every other source, but why does God allow this? Now that may be because we haven't allowed the Word of God to address us so that we think biblically about this, as Dr. Packer says. And the other way is to say, Father I know that you have something to do in me through this. I know your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts than my thoughts. But I do want to know why this has come upon me. And I do not want to know why you have led me through this experience in these days so that I may reap the harvest of it, so that the fruit of it may grow to your glory and to the lasting good of my soul, Father, Why has this happened? I want to wait before you and learn the lessons of this experience thoroughly. And I think that's what Peter may have meant when he said, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season. What area of my life needs amending and reshaping? What gracious purpose will you fulfill for me in this? Receive it meekly. Finally, view it positively, verses 10 and 11, and also in verse 12. Positively or purposefully. For there is a negative attitude to this kind of trial and discipline, you see, and there is a positive attitude. Now, this is not Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking, of which you may know a little. This is apostolic positive thinking. It was Adlai Stevenson, wasn't it, who once said that he had read Norman Vincent Peale, and then he had read the Apostle Paul. And he said, I find Paul appealing and peel appalling. (laughs) And um, this is an appealing kind of positiveness that we need to gain in this sort of trial. It is to recognize that God is a great economist, that he never wastes one move in his dealings with his children, that he never lifts his hand unnecessarily, that he never, as the hymn writer says, have you ever really thought this through, my father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Never. Not a tear is needless in the economy of God because he has this positive purpose of bringing forth something for his glory out of our suffering. And what's important about it is the fruit that he means to bring forth from it. Notice this in verse 10. They disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure. It may be that their motives were mixed and their aims were rather vague, but he has no vagueness in his aims. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, don't pretend that you're enjoying it, he says. Don't imagine that this is something that you are going to have a masochistic attitude to, but recognize that there is fruit to be gained from it as we were thinking the other Sunday evening in John 15, of the pruning of the vine. It is for fruit that the husbandman prunes. And God the Father has this positive purpose. And there is a sense in which we are enabled to say with Amy Carmichael, Work on then, Lord, by all thine instruments in this frail body for thy glory. That's positive thinking. So he says, lift your drooping hands, verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Do you notice that this is a picture of this kind of negative attitude? You know, bowed beneath all this, cast down as it were, not not able to move. And he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, don't put stumbling blocks in your way in the midst of this trial. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord.
0: You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601 or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.